You know, I haven't uh, often done announcements here at our church, once or twice maybe in the eight years that I've been your pastor. But there's one announcement which I have made at various times ever since I've been here, and that is Jesus Christ is coming back. And he is. And I hope you know that, and I pray that you are ready. Ever since Jesus promised to return, his people have been waiting expectantly. The return of Jesus Christ will be the third great act of God. All that God does is, of course, great because he is great. And I suppose you could argue that we should expand my list to include some other things. But for certain, there have already been two times when we might say that eternity turned a kind of figurative corner where it was altered and changed forever. The first great act of God was the creation. God himself has always been. He is complete in himself and has never needed anything. Uh, there's a term that theologians use to describe his existence before creation, perichoresis, which can be understood to mean something like the eternal dance. God exists as a trinity, one God in three persons, overflowing with love and joy in each person of the Godhead within the others fully and completely and yet remaining themselves, each praising and enjoying and loving the other persons. And full and complete and overflowing, God decided to make creatures that would be something like him, to share with them all that he had. They would bear his image so he could love them and so that they could love him in return, giving them eternal purpose, worth, and dignity. He created humankind. He created out of nothing the universe which would constantly declare his glory and which would give us a place to live and to enjoy and to wonder at and to care for. And all of that being wonderful and beautiful and amazing as it is, and yet the greatest thing that he was, had to offer was himself, the greatest gift of all, which he intended to give us freely, for there is no end of him. Now, I don't know the right way to say it, for all of our thoughts and our words about time and eternity fall far short of the reality. But because I have to say it some way, I will, and I will say what I already said. Eternity was altered. It turned a corner. God created, and things haven't been the same since. Now, the next big thing to occur was not an act of God. It was something we did. We sent a seismic wave of destruction throughout of his, his creation from one corner to the other, bringing in sin and suffering and death and pain and almost unbounded sorrow. So high where we set our fall was as devastating as it was astounding. It has been observed by many that God would have been completely just to simply wipe out humankind and the evil that they ushered in. But he didn't. 
He continued to sustain our world, and he began to act, doing great things and wonderful things. But only in preparation for that second great act, which was the incarnation. Another theological term meaning God became a man. Specifically, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, took on human form. And we all know the story. He was born of a virgin in a stable in Bethlehem. And that was just the beginning of the incarnation. For he lived as a man. That's part of what it meant to be incarnated. And he was tempted in every way that we are. And so he understands us, not just, not just in his omniscience, but as a feeling in the pit of his stomach. And yet, he was without sin. In terms of the Old Testament, he had no spot or blemish, which is what the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world had to be. And that's why he came. The Bible tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we could die to sin and live for righteousness. It's by his wounds that we're healed. So he died for our sins, but death couldn't hold him. And that man, that perfect man, the God-man, rose from the dead, retaining his body for all time. He is one of us. And if you were to argue that the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ were all great wrecks of God, I would not dispute you. But again, because of the incarnation, eternity turned a corner. Things were different. Jesus still is the God-man and always will be. And since that time, God has been at work in our world, just as he was at work after the fall. But this is the age of the Holy Spirit, the most privileged times for humankind, for those who know Jesus, that is. For God lives in us, and we, we can live the Christian life, the life God has called us to. There's only one way we can do that. Just as the Father sent the Son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves to take away our sin, so it is every bit as much God's will that we live the Christian life the only way we can in the power of the Spirit. That's God's plan, and it's His design. No, we don't do it perfectly. We still fail. We still sin. But because the Spirit lives in us, we can live it better than any who have gone on before us and in greater freedom too. God is still acting. He's still doing great and good things. But there's one more great act of God to come. Maybe there's one, uh, you know, beyond it, uh, uh, far out on the horizon at the very border and edge of time. When God will create the new heavens and the new earth, and then that too might be a great act of God where eternity itself will turn a corner. But before that, the next great event, the one that we ought to be looking forward to, the next great act of God will be the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to take our cue from last week's text in Acts chapter 1 when the angels assured the disciples that Jesus was coming back. And we're going to talk about that. And the first thing that we need to know about that is he is coming back. 
And I don't mean to be redundant, but this is the first thing that we need to know and believe. On the night that he was betrayed, after his arrest, while he was being interrogated by the religious leaders, Jesus answered one last question put to him by the high priest, inquiring whether or not he was the Son of God. To which Jesus replied in Mark 14, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. That answer got him the death penalty. But in that response, Jesus himself promised to return. At what was almost the lowest point of his human life, for the crucifixion was yet to come, he, he was apparently in the power of his enemies, his mortal enemies. He, he makes what can only be called a promise, that he will return coming on the clouds of heaven. And the next day he was put to death, and from the viewpoint of his enemies, the story was over. But it wasn't, was it, as we know. He rose from the dead just as he said he would, just as he said he would be betrayed and the rest of the disciples would desert him and then he would be mistreated and put to death. Everything he had ever promised was fulfilled or would be. If he can rise from the dead, he can certainly come back on the clouds in the same way he went to heaven, just as he said he would. In his darkest moments, Jesus knew he was coming back to make things right, and we can know that too, no matter how dark the world may seem. Right now it's raining, and there's no sun shining that we can see, but the sun is still shining. Does our world, even on the brightest days, when there is no cloud and rain, does our world seem dark to you? Does it seem like everything is falling apart? Do you wonder what's coming next? I, I do. It, it seems to me there is no end to the sinfulness and foolishness and blindness of governments and people. I don't see only evil, but I have never witnessed the likes of this in my lifetime, and I dare say those who are much older than me would say the same. And, and still God is in control. The world has been this bad before and repentance and revival can still come and we ought to hope for it and we ought to pray for it. But no matter what, no matter how dark it might get, Jesus Christ is coming back. And he's our example. He's one of us. In the midst of the darkness, he trusted his Father, so should we. Jesus Christ is coming back. That's the first thing we need to know, and knowing that can change the way we see this world and how we live in it. Which brings us to the next truth. <laughs> and that is we cannot know just when Jesus will return. Now, last week we saw how all of our lives and all of the lives of the believers who've come before us and any who should follow after us, all of our lives are lived out between two great events, the ascension of Jesus Christ and his return. And just before he returned to heaven in the last of the resurrection appearances, when asked by his followers when his kingdom would come, 
Acts 1-7 records Jesus' response, which we looked at last week. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. He basically repeats the same idea he had stated much earlier in his ministry, before his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion, when he said in Mark 13, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As a man, even Jesus didn't know when that would be. No one on this earth knows when Jesus will come back. Now, one might ask, why not? <laughs> why can't we know just when he will come back? Well, you know, we're really never really given a reason. We're just told that that particular piece of knowledge is something we should not know. But we can't do a little reasoning, maybe, and to the reason why. And, and since we're in a spiritual war, you know, we don't want to telegraph your plans to the enemy. I mean, the time of the return of Christ may be a piece of information that the enemy should never have. In the planning of D-Day in World War II, the Allies went to a great deal of trouble to disguise their actual landing point, going to the point of constructing and staffing as far as possible a fake launching point that, that would indicate they were going somewhere else than Normandy. I, I don't know, maybe there's some truth in that, but it's high-level stuff, and it's beyond my pay grade. But there is something more we can be sure of, and that's the fickleness of the human heart. Jeremiah says in 17.9, and I'm using the New Living Translation because it states it true so clearly, that the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? If people knew when Jesus was coming back, they would always be putting off the truth. They would always be thinking, I've got time. They could always deal with this Jesus thing in their sin later, tomorrow, or the day after it, or the day after that, or next week, or next month, or next year, until their heart would become so hard they could never respond. I mean, they do that now, not knowing when he returns. They do it now knowing that they may not have a tomorrow. And even Christians aren't immune to putting things off until tomorrow. And for that reason alone, it is an act of mercy that we don't know the date. There is, however, another more important reason for not knowing the timing of his return. Important to us as believers. And before we look at it, though, I, let me tell you the way this truth is sometimes put. Sometimes it's put in the negative, uh, usually in respect to some particular sin. Sometimes we'll, someone will say, what if you were caught doing that? That sin, whatever it is, when Jesus comes back. It's a sobering thought, right? I mean, it communicates a real truth, doesn't it? No one would want to be purposely engaging in bad behavior at the time of Jesus' return. And, and if you knew the time of his return, given the sinfulness of our hearts, we might be so tempted to live like the unbelievers. The idea in that warning is true, but it doesn't have the power that hope does. Understand this. Because we don't know when Christ will return, we ought to live in constant hope. 
In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are looking forward with anticipation to his coming, not half-treading it because we are afraid to be caught in some sin. And writing to Titus in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says the return of Jesus Christ is the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How different is that outlook than living in fear? Now, I've told you this before, but when my dad was a young man, he would walk 10 miles to see the girl who would become my mother. At the end of each visit, he would walk those same 10 miles on his way back home. And it was drudgery and it had to be done. But that trip to see my mom, it was full of anticipation and excitement. And as he knew, as he walked, that he would soon see that girl that he loved. And that trip was just filled with hope. And there was a spring in his step. The return of Jesus Christ should be like that for us. How much more power would there be in our lives when we are thinking someday, maybe even someday soon, my Jesus is coming back. What a glorious day that'll be. I can't wait. And not knowing the date of his return helps us to live in this kind of continual hope of Jesus is coming back. He said so. And we can believe him. We can live and die knowing it is true. That is the hope which changes the way that we live. And when that day returns, or when that day comes, his return will mean unending joy for all of his people. The words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 25 reveal something of that day and the joy which is to be ours. I, I want you to listen. And I want you to let these words speak to your heart. Can, can you see this day in your mind's eye when Jesus says these words in Matthew 25? When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels are with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hands and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. In chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews hints at that time when he says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names were written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Isaiah in the Old Testament looked forward to that day when he wrote, Only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. 
That is what the return of Christ will mean to those of us who know him. It will be the beginning of absolutely unending joy. Maybe you can remember certain Christmas mornings when you were young, when the tree was decorated and the presents held out promise. And it seemed to you right then that things just couldn't be any better and the gifts were not even open yet. That's just the faintest reflection of what it will be like for us when Jesus Christ comes back. And if that weren't enough, there's more still. Because those who have gone on before us, whose place is empty, and are no longer at our table, who we're missing, whom we miss year after year, they'll be restored to us in a better way than we could have ever known them if they knew Jesus too. Paul reminds us of that truth in Thessalonians 4. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Our son Bo is uh, in the Middle East right now, and we haven't seen him since May. We're really looking forward to seeing him in December. It's going to be so but what will it be like for me when I see my mom again who died almost 10 years ago after a long decline with Alzheimer's? I can't imagine it. But I long for it. I miss her. But one day we'll be together again. And I haven't even mentioned the most wonderful thing about that day yet. We will be with our God and Savior who has loved us with an everlasting love. The last book of uh, the Bible, Revelation, chapter 21, speaks of that time in these words. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look. God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and they be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order has passed away. And it goes on to say in verse 5, And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Paul tells us an interesting truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, quoting the Old Testament. However, as it is written, what, I, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love them, but these are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. See, because the Spirit of God is living in us, we have a hint of what is coming. Now, I don't mean we see it perfectly. It's more like a quick glimpse or like looking at something through a dark glass. You might think of it as like driving up a great mountain at the top of which is the most spectacular view in the world. And at the top, uh, when you get there, that sight on once it's seen will change your life forever. And as you drive up, you catch an occasional break in the trees. You see some small part of what is waiting. And it makes you want more. It makes you keep going. You anticipate what is ahead. Here and now on this earth, there are times when you and I have tasted a little bit of heaven. 
Times when, when we've been with other Christians in the presence of God. When the day's almost gone and all the food has been eaten and all the old jokes have been told. When the peace of God fills our heart and we can be still and know that he is. When maybe we're a little tired, but we don't want to leave. For nothing has ever felt so much like home. That's a small taste of what it'll be like when we are finally with our God. The trumpet hasn't sounded yet. But if you close your eyes, can't you almost hear the trumpeter taking a breath? Inhaling long and deep. Getting ready to sound the blast, which will wake the dead and transform the living in the twinkling of an eye, announcing the return. He comes. He comes. Riding on the clouds, the king comes. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And every knee will bow before him in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All to the glory of God the Father. When that trumpet sounds, will you be ready? When that trumpet sounds, Will you have fulfilled God's purpose for your life? I don't know when. I, I can't tell you when. But I can tell you. He is coming again. Glory. Glory be to God. Jesus is coming. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for uh, your faithfulness to us. And thank you, Lord, that though um, sometimes we look around us and we, we don't know what to do and feel like all we can do is shake our heads. And yet that's not all we can do. We can be faithful. We can walk with you. We can make a difference in the world that we live in. And we can wait. Because we know our Savior's coming back. We can stand because your Spirit lives in us and strengthens us. We can walk in his power. And we can make a difference. Because you live in us. Because you work in us. Because you are our God. Thank you. In Jesus' name.